0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: This podcast contains content of a sensitive nature that may be upsetting to some listeners.
2: I filled the prescription started on that journey and have been medicated ever since. I mean, for me to spend three years in a mental health system and to come out worse off than I was going in speaks volumes.
1: This is 10 News First Person. I'm Narelda Jacobs. For 30 years, Aurelio Costarella was one of Australia's top fashion designers. He was a popular fixture at Sydney and New York Fashion Weeks, and his clothes were favoured by celebrities all over the world. But underneath the glitz and glamour, it was a very different story.
2: It was the first time that I realised that I had no sense of who I was anymore. I'd actually lost my sense of self during this process of building a brand.
1: Aurelio had always struggled with his mental health but kept it a secret from everyone for a long time. 10 News First reporter Lee Steele with this story.
2: Mum was a home dressmaker. I spent a lot of my time at home with mum when I was young, just the two of us, because dad worked away for weeks at a time. Just watching mum cut and sew, because she made all of our clothes growing up, very rarely bought anything. She was very skilled. I started sewing around the age of 10. His mum had a Singer Treadley sewing machine that she brought from Italy with her, and it was one of the very few possessions that she brought out. They didn't have a lot. Sewing, I mean, I just it was something that came quite naturally to me. As a kid, I would sit at the the machine and I would literally just be stitching together scraps of fabric and bits of newspaper and anything I could get my hands on. And by the time I was 10, I made my first fully-fledged garment, which was a red and white paisley halter neck top for the granddaughter of the woman who lived next door. So I guess it was always there. It was always a part of who I was and I grew up around it and observing it. But it was never a career option that I had considered. I studied architecture for two years because I've always loved architecture and a lot of my fashion work was informed by architecture. A lot of it was very kind of 3D and sculptural and, and that's actually how I taught myself to make patterns. And then yeah, during my second year of architecture studies I started making clothes just because I was really inspired by what was happening in fashion at the time. It was. 1983, and um, yeah, I was influenced by a lot of the Japanese designers who had just made their mark in Paris, like Comte de Garcon, and Yoshi Yamamoto, and Kenzo, and that whole group of designers, and then you had Vivienne Westwood and what she was doing. That's where it all grew from. By the end of my second year of architecture, I thought, you know what, I actually just want to make clothes. So I dropped out, and much to my parents' dismay, they couldn't get their head around the idea that I was dropping out of architecture to make clothes. So I started my business at the age of 19 and in 1984, so yeah, when I was 20, I did a parade at the Parmelia Hilton and I did this full runway collection and I finished with a bridal gown, as you do. <laughs> it was just insane. I just spent so much time. I was still you know, living at home and working from my parents' dining room table. They would have to kind of live around this mess of me using the dining room table to cut and had my sewing machine permanently set up there.
0: It wasn't long before things started to really take off for Aurelio. In
2: 1984, I bought into an existing retail store. So There was a store called Cream Soda, which was in Cremorne Arcade, which no longer exists. It was all very cool and underground, and I just thought, wow, I'd really love to get some of my clothes in here, but I, was, I wasn't even confident enough to go in there. And one day I just made this very bold move and I went in there with the bags and I showed them to Kerry who owned the store and she loved them and took them on consignment and then within six months about 70% of the turnover was my product and so at the end of that year I dropped out of architecture and I bought into her business with the help of my parents just begrudgingly. Then I took it over and then by 1987 I had moved, I'd relocated the original Rain Square before they redeveloped and opened a new store there and then that same year I started wholesaling nationally. I literally just packed a suitcase full of clothes, booked a ticket, flew to Sydney, didn't know anyone there, set myself up in a hotel room and just started cold calling people. On my first day I secured an agent and I wrote my very first order for $25,000 which back then was a hell of a lot of money and I thought wow this this is it, this is what I'm doing and flew to Melbourne from there, picked up an agent in Melbourne, same, picked up accounts and it just grew from there for the next few years and then it was 1890 we had the recession, it was kind of that post America's Cup period and the wholesale game was diabolical. At that point I had to rethink it and that's when I opened my retail store on Bayview Terrace in Claremont. I think it was around April 1991. So I focused on retail again for a few years before I went back into wholesale again. And then in 94 I opened a store in the Strand Arcade in Sydney. That was kind of the beginning or the evolution of, of the brand.
0: And it wasn't long before celebrities were knocking at his door.
2: When I was at Cream Soda, I had a lot of bands, both local and international, that would come in. Pseudo Echo, the Eurogliders, the models, the big bands of the day, whenever they were in Perth or touring, they would come in and pick up pieces. The only person I didn't recognise was Amanda from the Eurogliders. And it was quite funny because she'd been in a few times and she always bought pieces. And then one day she came in and we were chatting and she said, oh, I love wearing your clothes. They work really well on stage. And I was like, oh, OK, what do you do? She said, I play keyboards in a band. I said, oh, anyone I've ever heard of? I said, yeah, the Eurogliders. And I was like, oh, <laughs> whoops. The Kate Blanchet story is one that I'm particularly fond of. That was in 2000. So that was when I actually relaunched my brand at Fashion Week in Sydney, and I remember that the, the day of that show so significantly because it was pouring with rain, and of course I was already terrified about the you know the whole prospect of relaunching my brand because it was I'd gone through quite a difficult time in the years prior to that because I'd actually lost my business, um, had to declare myself bankrupt. So coming back from that was was difficult, but the show was so well received and the moment the show finished, I was backstage and I was sobbing because I literally thought, how on earth did I pull this together? It was just such a, it was a relief. It was, it was overwhelming. I worked for months to pull this collection together and um, really put everything on the line. So there I am in tears backstage, I get a tap on my shoulder and it was Corinne Upton-Baker who was the editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar at the time and she said, Aurelia, we you know, absolutely loved your show, it was so beautiful and I've got someone here who'd like to meet you and I looked over her shoulder and it was Kate Blanchett and I was just like, oh my god. And you know those moments when you just meet someone that you've just absolutely, who's a you know, work you've adored and I just, in that moment I just went completely dumb, She was a big fan and she actually picked my show as her show of the week, which was a huge honour. So consequently, um, that was the beginning of Aurelio Costarella, the brand. So it was 2000 and then by 2006, I was showing at New York Fashion Week.
0: And what was that like?
2: It was something that I had always aspired to. So getting there was obviously something that was a huge achievement and it was a thrill for me. I was so excited about being there and having the opportunity to show at New York Fashion Week that I was actually just pretty thrilled to be there and be a part of that. We went on to show in New York for quite a few seasons. Up until September 2008, I did a show at Bryant Park, which again was another huge achievement for anyone showing at uh, New York Fashion Week, but then the week post-show, We were in the New York showroom trying to sell the collection. And of course, that was the, that very week that the stock market crashed and the whole GFC happened and buyers were not spending money and the dollar had dropped. So I'd costed my whole show at Fashion Week when the dollar was you know, up around 98 cents and it had dropped down to about 63. So the cost of then staging that show ended up being much greater than I thought. So I really had to come back and consolidate and look at where to from here because the international market was no longer an option. You have to reinvent yourself. You know, Within months, you've really got to come back and find a whole new strategy and find a way forward. There was a lot of pressure around that, along with the pressure of having to produce collections every you know, three to four months and be ahead of the game. So I was always working at least six to 12 months ahead of myself. So whilst I'm showing a collection, I'm already working on the next collection. And then whilst you're doing that, you're in production and having to deliver the current season. So at any one time you're working across two or three different collections.
0: But unfortunately, the pressure of keeping up with trends and growing a business had started to take its toll before this point.
2: The joy for me came out of the creative pursuit. That's the piece that I love. But the reality is that as the business grew and we were doing a lot more internationally... I was having to spend more of my time focusing on running a business, business development, managing staff, retail stores. I was at every sales appointment. You know, doing all of that took up at least 90% of my time. So you're not actually left with a hell of a lot of time to be creative. So I did a lot of my creative stuff sitting on a plane between, you know, New York and Paris, or, which all sounds very glamorous, but it's not. You know, there's this misconception around the fashion industry that it's glamorous and it's fabulous and it's it's just, it's nice, it's just bloody hard work. And that's the bit that people don't see. And that was the bit that I was struggling with privately, the bit that I didn't share with anyone. So I was already well into my mental health journey by this point. And that really, that began, you know, back in 1996, 97, that's when I was first diagnosed with major depressive disorder and prescribed antidepressants for the first time, and that was literally uh, you know around the the fallout from a business partnership that didn't go according to plan, me having to step away from the business, having to declare myself bankrupt, um, and I went through a period where I didn't leave the house for three months i didn't see anyone or talk to anyone. If the phone rang, I would just go into full-blown anxiety. I wouldn't answer it. If someone knocked at the door, I would hide. I just, I couldn't function at all. At that point, I didn't ever, I didn't know that I would come back from that. And I certainly didn't feel like I wanted to be in the fashion industry any longer. That was the beginning of a period of my life that I didn't talk about to anyone and even the whole concept of being prescribed antidepressants. I sat on that prescription for a month before I actually filled it because I just didn't want to go down that path. And a lot of that came from the fact that I grew up watching my mother struggle with anxiety and depression. From a very early age, I just had these recollections of her taking pills all of the time. I didn't understand what that was or what that meant, but I knew that she wasn't well, that she would spend days in bed And then what I discovered when I was old enough to understand was, as it turns out, my mum was having electric shock therapy. Not only that, she was actually prescribed benzos whilst she was pregnant with me. And it's only been in recent years that I've really understood the implications of that for me, because benzodiazepines are actually transferred in utero, which would explain why I was such an anxious child. I was very fearful as a kid terribly anxious. Socially, I there was a lot of anxiety. I didn't want to go to school. I, you know, anxious about getting on a bus. Just things that seemed so normal for everyone else around me. But for me, these things were terrifying. But I, I didn't know what was happening as a child. And it's only now that I look back at that period of my life and recognise so we, there is a lot of trauma there from early childhood that I was totally unaware of. I remember this vivid recollection of my sister taking me to school for the first day and uh, the teacher asking my name and, you know, my sister said, you know, it's Aurelio. And she said, oh, no, that's too hard. We'll just call you Ray. And then it stuck. Having your kind of identity changed on your first day at school, grade one, you know, as a six-year-old was kind of weird. So that all led to, you know, that receiving that first prescription and just having those memories of my mother taking pills and thinking, no, I don't want to be that person. But it got to a point where I just, I didn't function. So I filled the prescription, started on that that journey and have been medicated ever
1: since.
0: Aurelio's career reached its peak in 2014 and this came with its own kind of pressure.
2: I went through a period where I started having quite severe panic attacks. It got to a point where they were pretty much on a daily basis. Behind closed doors, in the office, I didn't want my staff to know what was going on. So again, you know, I spent years covering up the fact that I was struggling with my mental health. Being in the fashion industry requires you to be visible and do all of those things that didn't come naturally to me because I am actually an introvert. I'm most comfortable when I'm sitting at home on my couch (laughs) watching television. That's my comfort zone and having to attend events was not something that I particularly enjoyed. Something that I struggled with And one of the most annoying things about that was the number of people that would come up to me and say, oh, my God, you've got the most amazing life and you get to travel and meet all these celebrities and, you know, it must be so glamorous. I would just look at them and I never really knew how to respond. But it got to the point where it just became so tedious because I thought, you actually have no idea what I'm going through privately. By December 2014, I literally walked out of... office i said to my staff i'm going i'm not well i don't know if i'll be back on the 2nd of february 2015 i had my first admission to the perth clinic it was an eight-week admission and it was during that time that i decided that it was time for me to talk about my mental health journey it was the single most important thing i've ever done by sharing my story it was just like this weight had lifted i was finally able to be honest about who i was and the journey that i was on I didn't have to pretend anymore. If I wasn't okay, I could tell people. And there was something really powerful about that. So there was this shift in the way that I operated and the way that I interacted with people and just having that ability to say, do you know what? I'm actually not in a good space at the moment. But for years and years and years, it was just like, "Yes, yeah, sure, yep, yep. What do you, yeah, sure, yep, I'll do that. Not a problem. I wouldn't speak out about things. If someone had done something wrong by me. I, I was not that person that would confront them. But that had to change for me because I realised I wasn't being true to myself. During that first admission to the Perth clinic, I was doing one-on-one sessions with a therapist. It was really eye-opening because it was the first time that I realised that I had no sense of who I was anymore. I'd actually lost my sense of self during this process of building a brand.
0: When you were saying to people, I just can't come tonight, I'm not ready, I can't work on this, did you find that that was well received?
2: It was actually, but that's because I was able to be honest about the journey that I had been on. And had I done that much sooner, I could have saved myself a lot of anguish over the years, but I wasn't ready. When I thought about it back then, I thought, no, there's no way that I could talk publicly about what I'm going through. I mean, people, what will people think? I never thought, no, this is actually about me. This is about what's best for me. And this was the the wonderful thing, and probably the only wonderful thing about being in the mental health system and, and having spent well, over a three year period, 51 weeks as an inpatient, was the number of people that I met and the conversations that I had And we're talking from 14, 15-year-old adolescents to 80-year-olds about their mental health journeys and the discrimination that they've come up against or their fears around disclosing their mental health status. Some of the stories I heard, one particular case, someone that I became good friends with, had asked her employer for some time off to deal with some mental health issues. And it was suggested to her that she should consider resigning or they'd have to let her go. She was a manager of a team of you know, 20 people. And I just thought, what? Surely they can't do that. But then this was a recurring theme. I was hearing this a lot about people that were having to take annual leave to go into the clinic without their employer knowing where they were. And I thought, wow, I'm actually in a really fortunate position that I've been able to step back from my business. I have a team there who are carrying on without me. And people from all walks of life, you know, business owners and doctors and lawyers. And then there were people that had been living on disability for 10 years because their mental health issues were so complex that they weren't able to work. That wasn't an option for them. Someone who was living in the back of her camper van because she couldn't afford anywhere to live people that were in the Perth clinic because they couldn't afford to pay rent. So they were in between accommodation, had to find somewhere else to go. So these are all the things that you hear about when you're actually in that system and stories that I would not have heard otherwise. And it really opened my eyes to the much bigger problem, the social issues that are attached or that that coexist with mental health. And these are issues that are still not being addressed. We have such a long way to go to fix not just a mental health issue, all of those other issues, the alcohol and other drug issues that live in that same space, the homelessness.
0: So what are the biggest changes that you want to see? What are some of those areas that in Australia with our mental health system that just do need to be worked on? Do we change our thinking with treatment?
2: All of that. All of that. I mean, fundamentally, our mental health system, and this is not just a West Australian issue, this is an issue nationally, we need to go back and reassess the whole model of care because it just is not working. We keep talking about how broken our system is, but what are we doing actively to change that? What are we doing to fix this broken mental health system? And we know those of us that have been in the system know how fundamentally flawed it is. I mean, for me to spend three years in a mental health system and to come out worse off than I was going in speaks volumes. It took me two and a half years to get my medical records from the Perth clinic. I have four volumes and there are thousands and thousands of pages. I knew that I had been prescribed quite a number of medications, but I had no idea that over that three year period, I was prescribed a total of 23 different medications. And a lot of those medications were used off-label. Off-label medications are meds that are used. Antipsychotics, for example, are commonly used off-label. So whilst I don't have issues with psychosis, they're given to people dealing with depression to augment the effects of antidepressants because we got to a point where there wasn't an antidepressant that would work for me. There are people who have had some success with them, but there was just nothing. So they just kept prescribing all sorts of medications. And at one stage, I was on three def- different antidepressants. At the same time, I was on also on two antipsychotics. I got up to being on three different benzodiazepines concurrently for over three years without any informed consent. And this is the big piece. The informed consent piece. Most people don't even know what informed consent in relation to psychiatric prescribing is. So how can they be provided informed consent if they don't even know what, what... I just have so many conversations with people who have been harmed by psychiatric meds. I didn't receive adequate information around the medications that I was being prescribed. So when it comes to the benzodiazepines, for example, I'm now three years into protracted benzo withdrawal. Had I been told that there was a potential that I would become dependent, I would go into tolerance withdrawal, I would have made very different decisions. But that power was taken from me because I was never provided with that information to allow me to make that decision. So the issue really is at the front line with prescribers, whether it be a GP or a psychiatrist. But then there's no accountability on the other end. I certainly, there was no accountability when I was discharged from the Perth clinic feeling suicidal. Nobody was concerned that I was being sent on my way in the midst of benzo withdrawal with no support in place. Nobody following up, checking in on me. It was just, there was nothing. It's little wonder that in WA we have one of the highest readmission rates of any other state in Australia when it comes to the mental health system. We have more incidents of mental health issues than any other state. We have more presentations to emergency departments than any other state. We have the longest wait times than any other state. The average wait time if you present to an ED with mental health issues in WA is 16.9 hours. And generally, they do nothing for you. At best, you might go away with a prescription for another medication, but there is nowhere for you to go.
0: Not wanting anyone to go through what he's been through, Aurelio is a passionate advocate and campaigner for mental health. Among others, he's lent his voice to the Prevent Support Heal campaign, an initiative run by the Western Australian Association for Mental Health.
2: What we've been pushing for with the Prevent Support Heal campaign was, well, still is, more community-based support. Shifting the focus of support from that crisis, that clinical end, to a community base where people are actually getting early intervention, prevention. The number of parents that reach out to me with stories about their 14, 15, 16 year old who can't get access to any care, you know, six month wait time to see a psychiatrist. We have a huge issue that needs to be addressed. And I will continue to raise awareness until the powers that be start doing something about the systems that we have in place that are clearly not working.
0: These days Aurelio has managed to find a different outlet for his creativity that's not connected to the fashion world.
2: I need a creative outlet and I get that through my painting, my artwork. And that's great, because it's something I can do on my own when I'm feeling well enough to do it. But there's no pressure for me to do it. It's not like I'm working to a deadline. I create works and sell them if I choose to, but the wonderful thing about it is it's a creative pursuit that I have complete control over.
1: This episode was written, produced and edited by Ali Aitken. This has been a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. I'm Narelda Jacobs. We'll see you next time.
0: Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ.